We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Good morning, Storyline, and Merry Christmas. Watching the children sing just makes my heart sore. It also makes my heart sore. Not being together has never been tougher. And we all know the holidays can be the most difficult time of year, even in the best of times. And so now more than ever, I hope that you're finding ways to take care of yourself. Last week, we talked about how converting this soul-sucking isolation into life-giving solitude is one way to do just that. You know, that talk came out of a number of very thoughtful and heartfelt responses that, that I received about a phrase that we discussed a few weeks before that. It went like this. We should take care of our life like it belongs to someone we love, because it does. So I've been reflecting on that idea, and it occurred to me that Taking care of ourselves has more to do with Christmas than we might realize. And so this morning I'd like to look at how Christmas, God coming to us, God coming to earth for us, is all about how God wants to take care of us. A friend sent me this video last week, and I think it begins to get at this. Thank you. 
I love this idea of taking care of ourselves as if our life belongs to someone else. And Christmas as a reminder that our life is not just about us. It belongs to God and to the people that God has placed in our lives. And so to answer our question this morning, how is Christmas the way God is taking care of us? I think we need to begin by considering the predominant promise of Christmas. And when you look in the Bible, it becomes very quick, uh, very clear very quickly. We hear it over and over again in the ancient Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. Words like these. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Peace is the primary promise of Christmas. And it appears again in the New Testament of the Bible when the angels announce the birth of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest and peace to all men and women on earth. Jesus himself said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. The Apostle Paul encouraged new followers of Jesus writing this. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. This is the predominant theme, the main promise of Christmas, peace. And it's not a stretch to say that the challenge of our time is a lack of peace, both in the world and, I think if we're honest, in our hearts. And the question is, why? So last week I read this story about a little girl. She was four years old when her baby brother was born. And she began to ask her parents, if they would leave her alone with him. Well, that kind of worried them a little bit. You know, many four-year-olds can be jealous of a new infant and maybe want to harm the, the baby. And so at first they said no, but over time she wasn't showing any signs of resentment. And so they let her go into her baby brother's room one night while he was asleep. And eavesdropping in the hall, her parents heard her whisper, baby, tell me what God feels like. I'm starting to forget. <laughs> Even a four-year-old sees the heavenly peace of an infant sleeping. Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is the reminder that God feels like heavenly peace. That is easy to forget, isn't it? Christmas is our opportunity to remember what it feels like when God is taking care of us. This heavenly peace. Peace with God, peace with others, peace with life, and at peace with ourselves. This sense, this what the Bible calls this inexplicable peace, that in spite of all that can go wrong, we know that we are going to be okay, that God is on our side. And that all begins with Christmas. So why isn't that our predominant life experience? Why is the world then not at peace? If this is true, why does life so often feel more like 
this.
I love that song. So many great lines. As we grow up and grow older, I think we do discover that hope and history often don't rhyme. We forget what God feels like and the personal peace of mind, peace of heart, to say nothing, peace on earth can seem a million miles away. And so the story of humanity is this great turning away from God. We turn to many different things to deal with the harsh reality that what we love most in life is fleeting. It's something we can't secure. So we love life and yet we often resent it because it's precious on the one hand and precarious on the other. And it doesn't take long, maybe even at the very beginning, maybe by four years old, the critical question becomes like, how do we care for ourselves in this setting? Like, how do we find peace in all of this in real life? And it seems to me that one way to look at the history of mankind is that it is full of the stories of every path that we have pursued in search of peace tragically leading us to the opposite. Some of our most well-worn paths have included things like entertained amusement. You know, the ancient rulers picked up on this very quickly, like give the masses their bread and their circuses. In, in the modern world, it has become maybe sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Or as Timothy Leary said in the 60s, tune in, turn on, and drop out. Today, that path is more like maybe disengaged distraction, like the addiction that our society has to screens or drugs or shopping or food, all in an effort to help us forget. There's also this path of social prowess, like where status or reputation and prestige promise peace. And we, we see this in honor-based cultures where People die, literally, to save face or kill, literally, to gain respect. I saw it in the gang culture of Los Angeles when I lived there in the 90s. 15, 16-year-old boys, old enough to know that they were not at peace and willing to do anything for it. Kill someone to gain respect or to die to protect their reputation. Another popular path is that of successful achievement. If I could just get to this level or attain that title or get this income, then I could arrange my personal universe in such a way that my life will be securely in hand. Or on a larger scale, there's always political utopianism. That's a path that we've seen followed way too often in human history. If we could just elect the right leaders or install the right government, you know, with this wise arrangement of laws and rules and social values and tax rates, life can make sense. It could work perfectly. We could have it all under control. We can have peace. There are more mystical paths too, like magical thinking. Now this was literally common in ancient cultures where Societies practiced magic, everything from witchcraft to incantations and potions and spells, but it's still prevalent today in more subtle forms. You know, a recent poll revealed that almost one-third of Americans 
say that they are somewhat or very superstitious. Apprehension about Friday the 13th or full moons, knock on wood, don't step on a crack, lucky charms. These are all tacit admissions that there are things that we can do to control the uncontrollable world we find ourselves in. In her brilliant book, The Year of Magical Thinking, Joan Didion reflects on the death of her husband, writing this. There was a level on which I believed that what had happened remained reversible. That is what all these paths have in common. It's the core of what they promise, control. A way to fight back against the irreversibility of life, against the fact that something we love is beyond our ability to totally secure. And of course, we can't forget the most well-worn path to peace, religious bargaining, the rules to follow, the rituals to perform, the doctrines to hold, the people to exclude that will then get God on our side, both now and forever. I have a lot of friends who scoff at this one nowadays, but you don't have to be like officially religious to be deeply committed to religious bargaining. I mean, when you think about it, who doesn't really believe in karma? Like you reap what you sow. We love to see it in our nemesis when, you know, it catches up to them and they realize that karma is a bee. We also love it when we do good and then good comes back to us. And it's true, right, that life often does work that way. But let's make no mistake about it. This is religious bargaining. And while it does seem to work on some level for some of the time, we also know deep down that really horrible things do happen to really wonderful people. Karma, in the end, like all religious bargaining, is just a slightly more sophisticated and acceptable form of magical thinking in an effort to control the uncontrollable. All of these man-made promises all of these man-made paths to peace operate under some really shaky assumptions about reality, like the universe owes me and life should be safe and predictable, rewarding and fulfilling. And you know what? There are things that I can do that are in my control that will make peace happen in me, for me, and around me. Yet history makes it clear, all of these paths are dead ends. Our quest for peace has time and again, tragically and ironically, proven to be anything but peaceful. In fact, you could make a very good case that it is our conflicting versions of peace and peace on earth that actually prevent it from happening. Or maybe a better way to think of it is, the ways we try to care for ourselves often includes not caring for anyone else. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this. I'm not suggesting that everything about these other paths are bad in and of itself. Achievement, honor, tradition, 
good government, prosperity, vibrant religion, these can all be very good things. Sports psychologists even tell us that superstition has its place. For instance, I used to dribble one time with my left hand and four times with my right hand before I shot free throws. And it worked 77% of the time. So there you go. But let's be clear. Faith in God's grace is not giving up on or disparaging every other part of life. But it does put these aspects of life in their proper place. It relegates them to what they actually really are, which are ways to enhance and enjoy grace, not ways to earn it. And there is a huge difference. You see, enjoying the grace of God requires peace. Attempting to earn the grace of God prevents it. So I'm only suggesting, and I would submit that history seems to confirm that none of these paths, as promising as each of them can be, especially in the hands of a charismatic celebrity, politician, preacher, teacher, or guru, actually lead to peace. Which is where Christmas comes in. Where it breaks in, really. With the birth of God into the world, Christmas introduces a new way, a revolutionary way to be cared for and experience peace. Unlike all these other paths that not only assume the universe owes us, that life should be safe and predictable, fulfilling and rewarding, and that there are things that we can do, that we better do in order to achieve this peace, Christmas is the announcement that all at once acknowledges with stark raving honesty that life is precious and precarious, that the universe is not only indifferent to our survival, it is many times hostile to it. Christmas breaks into this world, our real, actual world, our real day-to-day -day lives as we live them, to proclaim that there is no path for us to follow to get to peace. But glory to God in the highest. There is a path peace takes to us. Christmas is the announcement that grace, the never-ending goodness of God, is why life exists. Grace the unearned acceptance and overflowing affection of God is how life works. Grace, the unconditional forgiveness and eternal love of God for everyone, everywhere, every day is where life is headed. Grace is the only path to peace because it is the path that God takes to us. So Christmas is this historical event the cosmic breaking and entering that demonstrates that God is on our side and that he is a God of grace. This, accepting this, trusting in this, is how God is taking care of us in Christmas. And it's also why God is taking care of us not just so that we can find peace. He's taking care of us because 
We belong to others. He's taking care of us to empower us to take care of the things that really matter.
Christmas is the invitation not just to enjoy peace, but to embody it, extend it, to make our hearts a manger of grace from which others can be nourished. I hope and pray that this Christmas we will all remember that is what God feels like and that we'll allow him to follow the path grace takes into our hearts and grant us a heavenly peace and through us peace on earth. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to be together. Uh, we are all too aware that um, in learning the hard way that there is nothing that we can do to make life safe and predictable, rewarding and fulfilling because sometimes it just isn't. Remind us that Christmas, your path of grace to us, means we can have peace regardless of what is happening to us and around us. And we can be peacemakers in the world. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for coming for us. And this week, I pray that you'll give us your eyes to see, your ears to hear, your hands to serve, and your heart to love and be agents of grace and peace. As we log off this morning, I hope, I pray that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas, folks.